0: Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus Season 23, Episode 18. Coming up on this show, we've got conjuring the light of nature, the Atlantean tech troops of the Rama War, and the
1: scalar weaponry potential of the Grand Gallery. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. You're going to have to bear with me a little bit on this episode because for lunch, Ben suggested to me that I get tapioca, something that I've never experienced before and I I've said, it to be terrifying. I just said get the bubbles. If you're going to get bubble tea, get the, the pearls <laughs> in there. Yeah, this is the thing. We go to this restaurant and he's like, oh, just get the bubble tea. And I'm like, well, didn't you say that tapioca is bad for you? Like, oh, no, just have <laughs> it. Just get it. If you Google bubble
0: tea pearls indigestion problems... You get about 10,000 results. And one of the top ones is a story from 2019. Teen severe stomach ache turns out to be undigested bubble tea pearls. What is it anyway? It it was a woman from Zhejiang province. Actually, it was just a teenager. It was a 14-year-old kid. She had pain so intense she couldn't eat. She couldn't defecate. They did x-rays. They found that her intestines were lined with hundreds of undigested tapioca balls, a.k.a bubble tea balls which you ate a ton of today. I threw out most of mine. <laughs> yeah. Cuz I had I had that articles I read an article ages ago about how they're bad for your stomach. So I had a few of them and then threw the rest out. <laughs> and you're just sitting <laughs> there going stomach These are good. <laughs> <laughs> eating like a kilo of tapioca balls. And,
1: and you knew, you knew. We're just like, keep going, you'll be fine. This story's from China, though. They're probably made of cement mix. Yeah, or true. Or probably, you know, like rubber balls or something. Look, actually, in all seriousness, we've got some really fascinating stuff coming up on this show. I'm going to expand a little bit on some of the topics we've been looking at recently, particularly about the usage of the Great Pyramid in Egypt, uh, a little bit of giants that kind of mixes in there, and then, of course, the weaponry of the ancients. I'm going to go into some of the work of uh, Joseph Farrell, who has uh, written a series of books that relate to the Death Star Uh, or the Giza Death Star, and how he kind of extrapolates upon Chris Dunn's work of believing that the uh, pyramid complex at Giza is some type of weaponry system. Well, it's a logical
0: step to go from Christopher Dunn's argument that the Great Pyramid at Giza is some kind of ancient power plant Mm -hmm. to that power plant is, in fact, a a potentially
1: deadly weapon. It actually makes more sense to me, in a way, and I'll I'll give you uh, Farrell's argument a little bit later on, but it makes more sense because I'm like, okay, if it was a power plant, well, what was it supplying power for? Like clearly, apparently from looking at Dunn's work, it could generate massive amounts of power. And I was thinking, yeah, I mean, there might've been a city there, but we've never really found any major city complex in archaeological expeditions that could be sufficient to match that power level. So what would need that much power? A weapon. A weapon would need that much power. And apparently somehow it was tied in with the Atlanteans and the Atlanteans made a Big mistake with it. Well, they used it to kill the dinosaurs when the dinosaurs
0: went rogue. <laughs> well, after they achieved full sentience, did the
1: dinosaurs go rogue or did the humans go
0: rogue? And then, well, mm, mm. we know where that story. Yeah, we goes. do, we do. What uh, have you got? I picked up an older book. It's from 1999. Mm-hmm. No, 2014. I was way off. Oh, we're definitely way off. Uh, it's called Wolf's Message by Suzanne Geisman. She's got an interesting history. Actually, a former Navy commander who uh, ended up she she was like a commanding officer to the joint Chiefs of, of staff during 911 uh she's got a master's degree in national security affairs uh incredibly experienced and educated on military affairs and after she retired from the navy she became a, a spirit medium and she talks about love and spirits
1: <laughs> it's this really weird Is dichotomy there a connection between the two careers did something happen to her that yeah it's yeah. it's
0: actually a bit of a sad story her uh Her daughter-in-law, who was also, she was in the Marines, uh, was also in the military. Her her daughter-in-law was a sergeant, and she was on base somewhere. I think it was in the states, and she was heading back to the barracks, and the weather suddenly changed. And and you know, one of her fellow soldiers kind of stuck his head out the window of the barracks and said, "Get your ass in here! Hurry up! Hurry up!" And she's like, "I'm coming! I'm coming!" Bam! She got struck by lightning. Oh! And was uh, yeah killed instantly. And uh, after this, there was a few strange paranormal things that happened to her mother-in-law, Suzanne, that caused Suzanne to just completely change her mind about you know, the big cosmic questions of life. And now
1: she's, she's a spirit medium. It's very sad when things like that happen, and I feel sorry for her loss. But at the same time, it's fascinating that it seems to be consistent with a lot of people that end up going down this path, becoming spirit mediums or, or having some type of connection to the spirit world, have done so through a, a the trauma of loss like how they kind of, you know, cross into this area. Well, I'm not really
0: going to tell her story today. I'm going to tell the story of her giving a, a presentation at a conference and she obviously spoke about her background and how she got into being becoming a medium. She told the story about her daughter-in-law dying from a lightning strike and at the end of her speech, there was a, a man who, you know, very quietly came up to her and basically said, uh, my son died in exactly the same way, being struck by lightning, yeah, but he knew it was going to happen. Oh, and that spurs off this this incredible story uh, where it makes you question whether he knew it was going to happen or whether he caused it to happen.
1: You know, I've looked into that sort of theme for the show in the past, and I've never been able to find any decent stories out of it to do a full kind of segment. But there is this subset of these stories that you find. Of people that claim, obviously, you know, because the person who's having the experience can't describe it after they've died, but family members and friends, there's this weird subset of them reporting that, oh, you know, my cousin or my brother, you know, they always said that they were going to die and they were always scared of this. And they died of that. And it was like, there's this question left of, well, is this some type of self-fulfilling prophecy? Or is it that it's like somehow they understood in their fate that this was what was going to take place? And no matter what they did, they couldn't avoid it. It's it's a very strange, weird kind of element to look well, into. the interesting thing about this story is the guy that died, he left a series of clues. Oh, okay. All right. I'm looking forward to that. Well, then let's just jump into this weaponry stuff, and then we'll get back to that in a moment. And as I said, you know, uh, where I was looking into this is because it was a follow-on from Chris Dunn's work with the uh, Giza power plant, and... As you mentioned there, Ben, yeah, I mean, Chris Dunn was under the belief that perhaps the Great Pyramid at at Giza and, you know, the connection with the other pyramids was being utilised for power generation of some kind, for what exactly, we're not entirely sure, but this is where Joseph Farrell has expanded upon this and in fact has read a lot of of Chris Dunn's work and said, well, look, I'm going to jump a little bit further with what I feel is the weapons hypothesis, is that the Great Pyramid at Cheops, or the Cheops, sorry, at Cheops, the Great Pyramid, Cheops is some type of uh, weaponry system that was decommissioned and deactivated a very, very long time ago. And what you have to look at is the, the power of the civilization that would have access to this type of technology to be able to build something like this and then also operate it. And I was, you know, after I read some of his work, I wanted to expand upon it a little bit because he just briefly mentions this idea of like, uh, you know, Michio Kaku talks about the different civilizations, like the the types of civilizations. So you've got three types of civilizations, you know, type one civilizations control the resources of an entire planet, type two control the resources of a star and type, or a galaxy, not a, sorry, a star or a solar system, and then type threes control the resources of a galaxy. And there are some people that are working in this field. I mean, even Zachariah Sitchin is referenced in some of his work um but there i mean farrell is under the impression that the civilization that created this weapon inside or utilizing the great pyramid whether well, either a type 2 or a type 3 civilization so very very advanced but certainly not what we understand of the egyptians from modern mainstream archaeology it doesn't make any sense so you have to look though at some of the the modern archaeological finds that give you some understanding that There's a lot more questions here than we realize. So, for example, when you look at the Great Pyramid, and this is recognized by mainstream archaeological researchers, when you look at the mortar that's used, apparently the erosion style of the mortar at the top uh, is significantly uh, reduced in comparison to the bottom. And what that means is that whatever the mortar was at the top was actually placed there far earlier than what the mortar is at the bottom. Huh? So exactly. So how nuts how is this? How does that work? So what this would suggest is that the pyramid was built upside down. So how how crazy <laughs> is that, right? <laughs> what? How, how does that even work? Uh, exactly. Like this is how crazy. And for
0: there to be water erosion, that means it, it's a, a long period of time before the whole thing's completed. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So So what you're saying is, Is that it was built in
1: space (laughs) and (laughs) and then landed to its location? No. What's more likely? It could be another. Now, on the very extreme end of this, is like yes, okay, it was built in space. That's probably the extreme. So
0: what you're saying is it was built in space
1: by the Fourth Reich? (laughs) 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 I'm not saying to Earth. (laughs) No, don't put words in my mouth. I'm not saying any of that. So what you're saying? No, I'm not saying (laughs) that. What I'm saying is that what you look from, and as I said, this is still mainstream, right? So the idea could be is that on the very outlying crazy concept is that whatever energies were being utilized within the pyramid has somehow changed the properties of that mortar as it's fired up through the center and the top of the pyramid. Uh, The other possibility is that it was like the, the top of the pyramid and that central core of it had actually been built a very, very long time ago, and subsequent less advanced civilizations that have come along and inherited the previous civilizations' knowledge have built out the pyramid. Right. That made it bigger. And in building it out, then that has obviously demonstrated why the mortar would have a difference in it. So that seems to be a more reasonable answer as opposed to it being built in space. But yet, it still leaves you with this question of, well, how did that happen? Like, why? And funnily enough, you know, especially what we've been talking about recently with, you know, the 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 alleged ancient groups that were uh, highly technologically advanced, heading through the Pacific. Uh, Some of the stories of the American Indians that describe, you know, we're talking about the mounds that were built, and they even say, we didn't build some of them. Some of these things you're describing, we didn't build them. The Egyptians also claimed that they were a legacy species there were a legacy civilization that came from a far more advanced civilization that had existed there before and of course as time passed on it became more of a myth but earlier on if you look into it they readily believed that they were a legacy civilization from a more advanced civilization that had had existed there before them and that would kind of make sense if there was some type of uh, catastrophe that had taken place that their weaponry had obviously gone wrong and they had wiped them out so The story of that comes in a little bit later, where we might gain some understanding as to to why that occurred. But let's take a closer look at the pyramid itself. And, you know, the structure and what Farrell describes here is that, uh, I mean, I'm no Egyptologist or archaeologist, so I'm, I'm not exactly sure in what he's saying, but I'm fascinated by what he's saying. And he's saying is that when you look at the pyramid this Great Pyramid, he says, embedded within the pyramid itself, in its, in its construction, there are analogs of the solar system and some uh, references to galactic systems. And we have to ask the question, why? And Farrell says, is that whoever built the grand py- or the Great Pyramid, these builders essentially created a gigantic coupled harmonic oscillator. And I was like, okay, that's a technical term that I'm no not entirely sure. No needed. Yeah, I won't. I won't have to explain that. That's fine. <laughs> no, I'm like, okay, so what? I mean, uh, what does that mean? And he's like, well, look, essentially, what you're talking about is it links in with something known as dimensional analogs. So I'm still like, blah, blah, blah. It's like <laughs> yeah, I, okay, yeah. what? What? He says, look, the structure itself is designed to oscillate and manipulate the energy of these analogs. So. Essentially, what I'm getting from him is that the way that it was constructed, it lines up with an understanding of a power source that we don't have today. So whether you want to refer to it as something like zero-point energy, uh, it's called the field and other circumstances, what he's suggesting is, is that the ancient builders of the Great Pyramid understood how to access this force. And it somehow relates to the universe, it relates to galactic systems, it relates to space. I mean, this is
0: what we've been arguing with a bunch of the most recent shows in terms of megalithic Absolutely. structures. That yeah, There is some force. That- and
1: that's the thing, right? And he's making this argument, right? And it's like, oh, come on. But when you look at these ancient megalithic sites, they all line up with space. They all line up with constellations. They all line up with the planets. You know, it sounds like it's completely mad, you know, from a modern perspective, but then why would they all do that? It's all can't just simply be for ritual. There has to be more to it. And this is what his argument is. It's like no, they they very well understood exactly what they were doing. They knew how to line it up, and in doing so, and using different degrees of geometry, they were able to harness this energy and manipulate it to use it for whatever purposes they want. And he says, "Look, you look at the pyramid itself. It utilises degrees of precision that is actually optical. Like it's so precise that our current understanding just doesn't make sense. This idea that it was groups of." You know, people, thousands of slaves that built these things so precisely. Yeah, maybe there were thousands of slaves there, you know, 2000 BC or 4000 BC, but the pyramid is much, much older than that, significantly older. And he says, you know, in fact, if you look at the pyramid, there's a water line around it. a water line suggesting that this pyramid existed before the Great Flood. And the Great Flood shows up in almost every single cultural myth that you can find. If you look through not just Western myths, but you look into deep history, you find that different cultures have the same description of this Great Flood taking place. So whatever this pyramid is, it was built an extremely long period ago. Now, you have to ask, well, when? Like, When could this thing possibly have been manufactured? Some people in this field, and you know, again, this is a very far out field, but some people in this field have put it back as far as uh, 12,000 to 14,000 BC, which oddly enough aligns with things like the Younger Dryas period, uh, aligns with other great destructive calamities that took place on Earth at the time. So it will kind of make sense that this thing was built around the time that all these disasters were taking place. If you look at some of the other stories that pop up, were these disasters actually being man-made or were they generated through some type of war that was taking place? And this pyramid was constructed at the time as a defensive or offensive weaponry system. So, I'm like, okay, I mean, you've, you've got me, I'm, I'm in, I'm really intrigued to find out more about this. So he says, look, you know, if you look at the plateau that the Egyptians, you know, have adopted, they've adopted it from, as I said before, this legacy race that was there before, or this more advanced race that was there before. He says, the casing stones that are uh, around the top, he says, you know, these casing stones used to have hieroglyphics embedded into them. And he says these hieroglyphics somehow line up with the technology that was being used. And this is this zero point thing once again. How? We don't know. How this, do we even know what they were? We don't know. This is a problem. Apparently, if the only place we get this from is from works of people like the uh, the Greek historian Herodotus. So we don't... This is a problem, right? We can't make these a statements of fact because they're coming from people like Herodotus, which we don't entirely know if... Look, is this something that he made up or is it something genuine? But when you All ma- I've read from his books are the saucy stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there's there's quite a few I as well. I haven't finished them yet. So if you do, you know, match this stuff up, and this is the problem we're left with, you know, I, I used that term recently that we're a species with amnesia. But we really are. I mean, you've got these people that, you know, like Farrell, that are out there trying to piece together this jigsaw puzzle, but most of the pieces are scattered to the winds of time. And this is why it's really hard to pull this stuff together. But in doing so, you can make hypotheses. And this is why he refers to it as a hypothesis. He says, you know, I don't have any proof of this taking place. But when you look and you line up all the pieces, this is where we can start to make a hypothesis about what was occurring at the time and what it was used for. So also around this time, right, we do have that there's stories that come from the Hindu, like the Hindu epics, and you know you and i have discussed those ben have many references to these great explosions that resemble you know nuclear fire and you know things that are modern it's it's funny how it's it kind of sits at around the same time and in fact you know what farrell says because you have to question it's like well how do these systems work like what was it doing he says what these pyramids are or what this particular pyramid is apparently the other pyramids would form a function of some kind but to simplify it It's like the pyramid is a piano, right? And you've got all these notes that can be played upon it. And with these notes, apparently if you press one note silently, and then you press a note to the other side, that note will cause the silent note to oscillate. And in oscillating harmonically, you can then control that and direct it to a location where you want to send it. So the idea that this weapon was like sending out some type of, you know, particle beam that came out of the top of it, that's not what it did what it fired was something that was similar to things like it described as a scalar weaponry. And I know that scalar is kind of very much you know, considered, um, it's a lot of, it's not even new age, but the term scalar is thrown around a lot by conspiracy theorists. But in saying that, I mean, this is what the belief is, is that this uh, harmonic resonance somehow generated a directable scalar wave that could be dumped upon anything. And funnily enough, the effects of it looked very similar to a nuclear explosion, except it was non-nuclear. It would still create radiation. Same destructive force. Same destructive force. And ultimately what this is, is that this is a space-time weapon. It is capable of altering space-time. So imagine the immense power that that is. So if you alter the space-time around a particular given target, you would be able to destroy it. And there's plenty of... like, If you look into history, you've got like Libyan desert glass, for example... Where there's this fused glass that is just sitting out there in the middle of the desert, which is consistent with the fused glass that was found at Trinity with the testing of the uh, the American nuclear bomb. It comes from the silica in the sand being fused together under extremely high forces and extremely um hot forces. And so you know some people have said, "Oh well, look, clearly this was a meteorite. Was like well, there's no impact crater in this particular location. You know, others have said, well, it's a bolide. And it's like, well, it's not a bolide because bolides don't explode that close to the earth to generate the amount of heat that would be required to cause the fusing. So the next conclusion is that this was involved in some type of deployment of force that was powerful enough to do that. And so, you know, one example is uh, Mahendra Daru, which is located, it's this ancient complex, which is located in Pakistan. And what's really cool about this particular site is that you've got walls around it That there seems to be that there was an explosion that took place in this particular location, and the explosion has a a a radius of I think it's around forty five meters or so, and when you look at this explosion, there's no crater at this site. Yeah. But when you look around the walls of these ancient or these very old uh, buildings, like obviously it's most of it's almost destroyed now. It's all vitrified. It's vitrified, and it's all vitrified inconsistency with the wall that would be facing the side of the explosion. So if you walk to the other side of the wall that was facing away from the explosion, this alleged explosion, it's not vitrified. Well, the one of the
0: weapons from the Ramayana was the Agneya Astra, which was a fire that was in, in, inextinguishable, you couldn't put it out. Right. It was some kind of weapon that discharged flames, but it would just melt everything in sight. Was it vast? Was it considered, like, said to be vast? Because, I, don't, I don't know the, the figures on what it destroyed, but right. <laughs> probably cities.
1: Look, whatever weapon was fired, uh, allegedly, with this uh, pyramid, it seems like it was a very large-scale weapon that would be used. It wouldn't be something small. And what's really strange about the mahendro Darrow site is that these, this apparently this location was so advanced that it was laid out like it was a, a pre-planned town something that wasn't consistent with what we thought peoples of the time would do. But they had clean streets. They had uh, a sewage system. They had a water system, which were kept very separate to the sewer system. Like modern um, Indian archaeologists say, what happened to you? Because their systems are no longer separated in some circumstances. (laughs) Very, very, very advanced in this, in this area. And, you know, they also had like toilets inside their homes. Um, There were things that just, you shouldn't, you wouldn't expect civilization to have this far back. But it appears that this was a very advanced race that was living here at the time that was wiped out. Now, as archaeologists, modern archaeologists have gone into this site and have started digging down into it, as they dug down, they ended up finding these 40 sprawled skeletons that were lying scattered in the streets and in the houses. So that when they have eventually pulled back this site and they found these skeletons, what's really strange is that If the skeletons are as old as they think they are, why didn't they decompose, like completely decompose? They're not fossilised. And they're obviously not buried. It's not a burial ground. They're not buried. They're just scattered. They are scattered. It was almost like they were just going about their work. They were going about the day, and something rapidly, much like Hiroshima, suddenly happened. So
0: they were probably buried, and there wasn't enough people or no impetus to dig them out and bury them properly. Well, So it means that the rest of the population was probably gone as well.
1: Well, the population apparently was about 40,000 people. So you've got 40,000 people believed to be in this site around the time. You've got 40 skeletons. We don't know exactly what happened. Uh, some of the uh, conclusions have been that someone knew that there was some type of weapon incoming, so they evacuated, leaving people behind. But what's really strange about these particular skeletons Is that you know? Some people said, "Oh, well, it was some type of uh, it was some type of of violent massacre," and you know, uh, the people of the time they knew that there was an incoming. uh, It was like the Indus civilization was going to attack them. No, it was sorry, it was Indo Aryans that were going to attack them, and so they you know got weapons together and they prepared to fight in the city in its final hours. But the thing about this is that these bodies don't have any weapons on them or near them. They don't appear to have any armor. Uh, they were clearly just going about their day they weren't getting prepared to to fight any you know forthcoming mm. invader and on top of that their skeletons display no violent injuries that would be consistent with being struck with a weapon well another one of the ramayana
0: weapons is the pramahana astra right. which causes the enemy army to collapse in a trance ah oh. and then just
1: lie there okay <laughs> Is it radioactive? I don't know. Okay, so this is where it becomes even more unusual, is that there are, and I'll, I'll get into, I don't have his name directly in front of me, I'll get into it in a moment. There was a a Russian researcher, and finally, we've just been talking about Yuvorov. Uh, the Russians were really into this stuff, but there was a, I can't believe, who was it? A Russian researcher who, I don't have his name, I will find it later on, but essentially what he claims is, He claims that these skeletons, when they were analysed, they found that the uh, radiation levels in them is 50 times that of normal. So why do they have a 50-fold increase in radiation in the skeletons unless they are exposed to some type of radiation at their point of death? And that's where, when you look at what happened to, to these people you know, is it that maybe some type of terrible event took place here was some weapon used? I mean, there's a, a British researcher by the name of David Davenport. He's this British Indian researcher, and he spent 12 years looking into these Hindu scripts, like trying to find out any details about what happened at this site where this great city once stood. And he ended up publishing a book called Atomic Destruction, in 2000 BC. So he didn't publish it in 2000 BC. It's called Atomic Destruction in 2000 BC. And he has some really strange and startling findings. He said, look, some of the objects at the site actually appeared to be fused. They were glassified by heat as high as 1500 degrees Celsius, followed by a sudden cooling. So what they refer to them is, I think they call them the black lamps. And what they are is they would have had clay pottery that was used as a torch of some kind. But the clay pottery has been hit with such a heat that it's caused it to fuse into a glass-like material. This isn't some type of... Wow. Yeah, this isn't things being placed in a kiln, and yeah. this is some type of sudden force. Can I read you a quote from the Mahabharata? Yeah, please, yeah. The earth shook,
0: scorched by the terrible violent heat of this weapon. Elephants burst into flame. And uh, over a vast area, other animals crumpled to the ground and died. From all points of the compass, the arrows of flame rained continuously
1: and fiercely. Sounds like a nuke. It sounds like a nuke. And, And that's the thing. When you look into the Mahabharata, you do find a lot of reference to passages that could be considered to be describing a nuclear weapon. You know, one thing that I have found, though, is that there are people that have made claims about, you know, what's written in these texts. And in fact, I've got something very similar to here. Uh, Listen to this, okay? It was a single projectile, charged with all the power of the universe, an incandescent column of smoke and flame, as bright as the thousand suns, rose in all its splendor. It was an unknown weapon, an iron thunderbolt, a gigantic messenger of death, which reduced to ashes the entire race. The corpses were so badly burned as to be unrecognizable. The hair and nails fell out, pottery broke without apparent cause, and the birds turned white. After a few hours, all foodstuffs were infected. To escape from this fire, the soldiers threw
0: themselves into streams. Yeah, the hair and nails falling out is the, the important detail there, well, right? Well,
1: the thing is, right, so prior to 1947, no one, or sorry, 1945, no one really understood what this was describing. It sounds like it's something cataclysmic. It sounds like it's something horrible, but we didn't understand. Until, obviously, the, the development of nuclear weapons. Mm. And what, was being, like, what happened at Hiroshima? Like the birds turning white. This is the kind of stuff that was reported. Birds flying were incinerated. You've got people that were running down into the water. And if you see, if you ever get a chance to go to Hiroshima, it's it's quite, I mean, it's a beautiful city, but at the same time, it's very daunting. And if you go to the museum, they've got these big paintings or big pictures up. And when you look at these pictures, it's people that the night that the bomb had gone off had all gone down and flooded into the river because the river was the only thing that was providing any type of comfort. It's not a cure but it does, you know, give you some respite from the pain that's being caused. This was being described thousands of years ago in an ancient text. It seems like it's a very similar thing. Nothing new under the sun. Well, exactly, right? And I think even there's that argument, or not argument, sorry. There's that quote, and I don't know if it's true or not. But Oppenheimer said something along the lines of, "I think he even quoted the Mahabharata at one point when yeah, he was I being am interviewed." Yeah, destroyer of worlds. That's right. Yeah, and in fact, I think there was a reporter at the time who asked him a question about, you know, is this the most powerful weapon that we've ever created? And I think he said something along the lines of, "Yeah, well, well, at this point in history." <laughs> so I mean, you can wonder if he was a, you know, a believer of ancient nuclear weapons being used. Um, the name of that Russian researcher I was looking for uh, looking for was A. Um, Govovsky and he was the one that claimed that yeah the levels of radioactivity inside these skeletons is 50 times greater than it should have been due to natural radiation so i mean something very strange took place here but what i mean what took place and
0: someone accidentally turned on the great pyramid well maybe it was a new guy he was just meant to clean the console he accidentally pushed one
1: of the crystals in the wrong direction (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just tripped over yeah. and w- wiped out half of ancient India. Right. Well, you know, th- there might be more to it than that. So let's just go back to the pyramid for a moment, and then I'll get into the story, which you know, might give us some understanding as to this terrible war that took place. But um, so if you look inside the pyramid, Dunn, you know, and this is, this is Chris Dunn, he describes, you know, some of these strange elements of the granites. And I don't know whether or not he was using it as a metaphor or if he actually meant it. And you know how, Ben, only last week or only recently, you were describing how there was seemed to be, you know, circuitry of some kind inside the the rocks of great, you know, monoliths and, and megaliths. That, that was your conclusion. I was just saying that there was light filaments. Right. Light filaments, right? Well, this is something that Chris Dunn kind of looked into and said the granites themselves seem to have... Uh, Cr- they're crystallized and these crystallized may or these crystals may have functioned in a way that would support piezo, the transport of piezoelectric or so right. piezoelectricity right. in such a way that it was like a circuit board. and if you look at the top of the, the Giza plateau and if you were to draw it out it almost in some ways has this geometric uh, circuit board kind of structure to it Oh, yeah, the
0: old uh, Tallenger explanation. Right. The top-down view. That's right. Looks like, yeah, looks like some kind of
1: circuit. Yeah, you can see, you know, how, you know, maybe this is how it functioned from our, you know, limited understanding of, you know, our modern electronics. But there's also all these missing elements that Dunn noticed on the interior of the, the pyramid. And, you know, one of the biggest things, first of all, there's these holes in the entrance that were clearly used for something, but what, he's not entirely sure but it's when you actually get into the grand gallery where things become more unusual. He says that there are these 27 slots that are throughout the the grand gallery. He says in this grand gallery, and this is what Farrell starts going into, there's some argument that in these 27 slots, they actually were uh, holding some spheres. And now it's almost like Don talking about this piezoelectric effect There was like, the only way it could be described, it looked like a sphere with a hole in the top of it. I don't know where he gets this information. I don't know how they come to this conclusion because I don't know if they've ever found one of these artifacts. But these spheres were made of crystal. And so they would have a piezoelectric effect, but they would also have an archaeo, uh, or, sorry, not an archaeo, but an acoustic effect as well. And so what they were is that these spheres, they had a hole in the top of them. And much like when you blow over a flute to create a tone something would have taken place to cause some mechanical function to convert into an electrical function inside these spheres. There were 27 of them that were placed along the top. Now, when they were in action, mm-hmm. what it would do in this uh, parabolic fashion with the structure and the, the geometry of the pyramid is that apparently you could get them to run and he says it would create uh, this Helmholtz, what do you refer to, or Helmholtz, sorry, resonance that could be amplified and manipulated to form a weapon of some kind. What exactly, I don't know, and I didn't get that far into it. If you're listening along and you think this is completely
0: insane, I want you to take a look at, (laughs) because a picture is worth a thousand words, I'm going to send you this picture, Aaron, on this comment of ancient sites looking like circuit boards. This is one of the best examples yeah. I can find. That's um, it's probably from Ancient Aliens, but it's it's Teotihuacan in Mexico, uh, side by side with a, a modern day circuit board.
1: Right. So you've got like a, a CPU with the the memory, and then the uh, like the connection between. it. Yeah, it's it's strange how you can find these similarities. I don't buy look, it. I don't buy it either. <laughs> but, it, but it does look, look convincing. I need to mention it because let's not it. Get in the way of a good story, which is coming up in a moment. Um, but you know, like apparently, you know, Farrell kind of refers to this as being some type of piezo uh, generator that could generate the energy required for the weaponry. So I'm like, okay, you know, like it's it's fascinating. I don't know if that's exactly what's taking place. And again, don't even you know shoot Farrell down because he's saying like, this is a hypothesis as well. But I like
0: the idea that the ancient Egyptians just moved into a giant. Circuit board, like they moved into the the uh, circuitry of an ancient weapon. They're like, oh, look at this crazy city that's left for, left here, but yeah. it's not a
1: city at all. Yeah, there's a they're, they're okay. living on a motherboard, <laughs> and then they just started building other temples on the motherboard. Well, it's because something catastrophic took place, and it was most likely a war. And you know, it seems like it's funny because remember how I was talking about the the war of Mars and how. You know, uh, Yuvorov was told on on the last episode by this extraterrestrial, this interdimensional being that, well, humanity is just a warring race. Like, human beings are warring, and if you guys uh, survive the next 50 years, you're going to come back and destroy us again. So it seems like it's also cyclic. It's the same thing that happens over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Some terrible catastrophe took place. So when the Egyptians inherited this land and started living there, they just moved into the circuit board because, like we are now, we don't know it's a circuit board. They just simply moved into it. So where we have to go now is the research of David Hatcher Childress. And look, I know that the guy is controversial, but he makes some really interesting uh, arguments when it comes to you know ancient atomic warfare that kind of builds on what Farrell was talking about, what Chris Dunn was talking about. But we have to look at this idea of warring races, and you know he pulls out some of the research that's come from you know, uh, Bible scholars, for one example, like if you look into, you know, biblical scholars, you'll find that like the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities, like it seems like they were actually destroyed and by some type of of weaponry. Like, yeah, they were smited by God, but if you dig closely, you see that there was some, potentially some type of weaponry that was used. Uh, There was a researcher by the name of L.M. Lewis, and he published a book called Footprints on the Sands of Time. And, you know, he maintains, like he's he's very uh, insistent, that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by ancient atomic weapons and that the salt pillars and high salt content of the Dead Sea are actually evidence of a nuclear blast. And if you look at the story, um, and I only mentioned that recently, Ben, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and how it was Lot. Remember how Lot was warned by the angels to get out of the city and then mm. when he fled the city, he was told you know, not to look back, but his wife looked back and she turned to salt? If you look at some of this, um, the argument that's made by Lewis is that, well, what it was is that we don't know. maybe it was extraterrestrials he doesn't say that but someone warned lot to get out because it was going to be bombed and because it was going to be bombed he got out and when his wife turned around and looked back she was actually obliterated by as she her molecular structure was changed by being exposed to this weaponry hence why she turned into salt it wasn't god doing it it was the result of whatever these weapons mm. are which are akin to nuclear weapons i'm just reading through
0: some different interpretations of the mahabharata while you you're doing your show or yep. your segment and uh There's one guy who claims that if you go through the text, it's clear that there were certain mantras that were used that would unleash these massive rays of destruction into the Earth's atmosphere and then they'd be directed. Uh, So the the idea is that it was was some kind of voice recognition or some kind of uh, crypto code word. (gasps) Hey Siri, smite them! Well, as literally as launch codes. Like there were specific launch codes that you needed to launch these weapons. And it was a specific mantra that was handed down to only a few people, much like the uh
1: you know, the the football or the launch codes
0: yes. in the American arsenal today.
1: Yeah. But I guess that's now been lost, obviously, is you know, there's no surviving member of that group that had retained this knowledge, which is probably not such a bad thing anyway. You know, Lewis also makes this claim that if you look at the Dead Sea, apparently at the edge of the Dead Sea or the end of the Dead Sea there are these pillars of salt and these pillars of salt are quite unusual in the fact that they've been there for an extremely long time. They're made of this special hard salt that he claims can only be created in a nuclear reaction, like an atomic explosion. Oh, that's weird. So, because yeah, I mean, it's salt, so it should have washed away by now, but it hasn't. So these pillars of salt, you know, have lasted indeed, you know, a very, very long time and they've been quoted in ancient texts so they've been around for an extremely long time and the only conclusion that people can come to in this field is saying, well, look, it's a nuclear weapon. I mean, maybe maybe there's some type of natural um, event that can take place that can cause them to form that way. Maybe there's some type of natural process that we haven't recognized, but it is interesting that you look at a location that's alleged to be connected with an ancient smiting, an yep. ancient devastation, mm-hmm. and then you have these little pieces of evidence that are left behind. So what we have to do, though, Childress says you have to look at some other ancient texts and some esoteric texts text as well to see if you can find you know, more information. And uh, he references the Lemurian Fellowship. He says the Lemurian Fellowship lesson materials detail a very, very strange story that relates to events surrounding Mu, Lemuria, you know, these sorts of areas. And it relates back to two opposing factions. So what you had is that you had these factions, one of them would being the Atlanteans, who obviously stuck around. Degenerates. Degenerates, that was blowing Diplodocuses and, and hanging around in that area. Correct. Uh, and then you also had a, a secondary group that took off, and where do you think the secondary group took off to? I don't care, they're degenerates too. India. Oh. Yeah, they ended up in India, right? So I'm like, hang in a second, this is kind of lining up mm. with, the, the, with the texts. And so uh, according to this, both groups considered themselves mm. masters of the world. And but the Indian group apparently became more calm, and they became more calm, and eventually they found peace. I mean, this is what everyone does, you know. If you want to have a spiritual, you know, awakening, you go to India, you go and have this journey. This seems to be what this group <laughs> that did. That's right? true on a civilizational stage. Absolutely, it is right. So they went to they went to India, and they became known as the Rama Empire, not Rama the God, but just the, the Rama Empire. And this Rama Empire spread out all across India, like this vast swathe of, of areas. So the Atlanteans heard about this. And apparently, according to these uh, Lemurian Fellowship texts, uh, apparently the Atlanteans are like, uh-uh. no, that's, that's not going to happen. It's, we're not happy with that. So the Atlanteans, which were equipped with this uh, formidable force of a fantastic array of weapons, decided that they were going to deploy these tech troops To the Rama cities. Tech troops. Yeah, apparently they were... So what had happened was when these two groups split off, the Atlanteans became extremely intelligent. I mean, they already were extremely intelligent, but they became more so. uh, Obviously not retaining any morality just because they were intelligent. They developed... uh, They became extreme hardcore materialists and developed extreme technologies. They went to the nth degree of, of weaponry technologies. And cyborgs. Well, we're not entirely sure. That's not or genetic there. engineering. Maybe. Well, yeah.
0: That I mean, genetic look, engineering would fall in line with what the p- remote viewing psychics say of
1: the past. Yeah, it would actually. That's a good point. Well, we don't know exactly. I mean, it, it's all very you know, um, it's very muddy to go through this stuff and open to obviously interpretation. What does Blavatsky say? Well, I don't know, actually. That's a good question. We should find out. But um, so these two groups, you know, the technological groups of the Atlanteans didn't like it that the Indian groups, when they'd gone through their spiritual journey, what had happened was that like, oh, no, weapons and materialism isn't good. They focused primarily on psychic weaponry. And it wasn't even about weaponry. It was like, we just have to focus on, you know, psychic processes and psychic things. And so the Atlanteans like... (laughs) It's not going to beat our tech troops and all of our nuclear weapons just to eradicate you. So they go and they deploy outside these cities and they get prepared to engage in this battle with the Rama, thinking that they're going to, to wipe them out. Now, the Rama empire didn't possess the technology of war or the, aggress- the aggressiveness of the Atlanteans. And they apparently, according to this report or to these texts, the Atlantean general sent this message saying, look, we're not going to destroy your land, but we have these mighty weapons at our command providing you pay sufficient tribute and accept us as your ruler, you know, the ruler of of Atlantis, we won't destroy you. And the Rama priest king at the time responded and said, look, we don't believe in war. We don't believe in strife. You know, peace is our ideal. We're not going to destroy your, destroy your soldiers. However, if you persist in your determination to attack us without cause and merely with the purpose of conquest, you will leave us with no recourse but to destroy you and all of your leaders. What? Depart... And leave us in peace. But they don't have any weapons. Be gone, Atlantean thought, is what they yelled. And they are right. What are they going to st- destroy them with, love? Okay, listen to this. Arrogantly, the Atlanteans did not believe that the Indians had the power to stop them, certainly not by technological means. At dawn, the Atlantean army began to march on the city. From a high viewpoint, the priest-king sadly watched the army advance. He then raised his arms heavenward... And using a particular mental technique, he caused the general and each officer in order of rank to drop dead in his tracks, oh. causing some kind of heart failure. In panic and without leaders, the remaining Atlanteans fled home and retreated in terror to Atlanteus. The siege, Rama City, was safe and not one man was lost. So this is interesting. So what we're, we're obviously inferring here. Psychic snipers. Psychic snipers. There was some type of you know, MK ultra weird mind thing that was happening that the, the Ramas possessed and they wiped them out. But this is a mistake, right? Yeah. They were defending themselves, but the Atlanteans are an arrogant bunch and they weren't happy about this humiliating defeat. So they're like, okay, that's it. Fritz, get the waffle hammer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And over they go. And they fire off their most powerful and destructive weapon that they have. Now we don't know what this weapon is, but in light of what we've been talking about today, it might have connections to the Giza weapon. It could be LinkedIn. This is maybe what they fire. We don't know. However, the story goes is that the uh, Atlanteans fired this weapon upon this location, obliterating it, which lines up potentially with the ancient site that is vitrified in Pakistan. So, uh-huh. it's in a, it's strange when you start putting these little connections together. It's obvious, none of it's proof. As I said, it's all just little pieces of a far greater puzzle that we don't have all the pieces. But in doing so, when you start looking at this stuff, you go, there are little connections there. Like, I know it's open to interpretation, but... It's very, very strange.
0: If you think of it in the sense of the Yugas as well, and the previous you know, cycle of civilization being more advanced than ours, certainly the weapons would be more advanced than ours.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know what happened, though? They were punished for their arrogance, the Atlanteans. So it wasn't just the blowing of the dinosaurs that destroyed them. Apparently, what you can look at is if you look in these areas of these ancient sites, the other place in, uh, I don't know if it's in Pakistan or in India, but it's called uh, Harappa. It's an, another location that seems to, in the ancient past, have been devastated with some type of weapon of great force. If you look at the, um, apparently, the the land around here, the agricultural land around here, uh, it's severely damaged. Apparently, it's quite hard to grow anything in these areas. But if, when you look into the ancient texts, they had no problems growing it. Mm-hmm. And so now, when you look at some of these locations... Uh, apparently in the Gobi Desert, which obviously we know now is a location where you can't grow anything, right? Well, it's very difficult to grow things. Apparently, according to esoteric literature, uh, at around the time of Atlantis, after the Atlanteans destroyed the Rama, they also continued with their their conquering. And there was a secondary civilization that actually existed in the Gobi Desert. They were highly advanced. The Atlanteans wanted to take over them. So this time, rather than being knocked down with some type of Indian side weaponry, Apparently, they pointed this weapon through the earth and they used a scalar wave to fire it through the center of the earth that wiped out their adversaries. But what it did is not only did it devastate this Gobi Desert, preventing it from being an agricultural area, it also turned back on themselves and destroyed Atlantis. Oops. Because they used a weapon that was far too powerful. So Atlantis met their own doom, according to Plato, by sinking into the ocean in a major cataclysm. This wasn't too long after the war with the Rama Empire and after they'd fired this weapon, allegedly fired this weapon. So, look, take from it what you will. It's a very, very unusual story. And yet again, though, I mean, whether or not it's true or the interpretation is way out, it gives us some indication that history is not what we think it is. You know, we think we have a grip on it. We think we're the most advanced civilization. We think we're ahead of everyone. We're not. There have been previous civilizations here, and what they did, I'm not entirely sure, but clearly they possessed weaponry and technology that was far advanced to what we have today.
0: I think that's the main takeaway. Absolutely is that, it is. That's, things were much, much more advanced than the, the normal timeline says, but in terms of these speculations on specifically what happened, it's like... yeah like throwing a dart at a, like a
1: board look, full of possibilities. I really like it, actually, that these researchers, you know, like Farrell, and they go out there and they, they try to, you know, at least they're having a go. And even though the stuff does sound to be quite extreme, I mean, they do find these little, you know, pieces of supporting information that kind of make you really think about it and go, look, maybe there could be more to this. But please don't accept that as being the truth of ancient mm. history. But at the same time, you know, be open to the possibilities that, you know, maybe there's a lot out there that we just simply don't understand. It's just like bubble tea pearls. You just take oh, one or why two. Why you have to mention those? My you can't, stomach hurts You can't so accept
0: the whole lot. You've just <laughs> got to take one or two bubble tea pearls. Isn't, if you take the whole lot, you end up getting sick and you spend 45 minutes in the toilet.
1: Isn't tapioca something that <laughs> elderly people normally like to eat? Like, why would they eat that? Why did you eat that? Because you told me it was good. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> just don't eat that much. Uh,
0: Let's talk about Wolf's message from Suzanne Geisman. Uh, I, I told you a little bit of the setup for this story. Again, former U.S. Navy commander, uh, very logical, um, you know, not really prone to thinking about supernatural things. And she had that tragedy in her life of her stepdaughter being struck by lightning, and it just opened up her possibilities to to what's out there because she had a, a visit after, I think it was actually a few days before her daughter-in-law was actually killed. Uh, she had this dream where her daughter-in-law a- appeared to her at this party and basically took her aside in this this party in a dream and said, everything's fine. Uh, the kids are going to be fine. I'm okay. You have nothing to worry about. Everything turns out the way it should should in the end. And then two days later, she was killed and she thought back to that dream and, and thought it was it was more than a dream. It was some kind of prophetic, yeah. It's a precursor event, vision, but also a real communication from the spirit of her her stepdaughter. And and because the you know time flows differently in other dimensions, it, it was a real kind of communication from this the, her soul that knew that she was going to pass away. So the story really centers around uh, this, this couple, though. It's Mike and Beth, this American couple, whose life was changed in a huge way also from the death of their son. Uh, he's got the nickname Wolf, which is where the title of the book comes from, Wolf's Message. Mm-hmm. But they were on this search for answers as well, which led them to this conference. It was run by the Edgar Cayce Association for Research and Enlightenment, the ARE Association, and it was in Virginia Beach. And at this conference, there was uh, Dr. Eben Alexander, oh. the, the author of Proof of Heaven. His book had just come out, and he was going to be speaking at this conference.
1: He's the guy that, when he had his past life—oh, sorry, not past life, but he had his near-death experience. Wasn't he flying on the back of a butterfly? Yeah, he was the the, the brain surgeon
0: who yeah. incre- had this incredible, you know, near-death experience and lived to tell the tale. Well, uh, Beth, the, um, the the wife of Micah, Beth, she read his book and was so impressed because she was. Uh, very much a rational thinker and didn't give in to woo. But she, when she read this neurosurgeon's book, Eben Alexander's book, she thought, hey, there might be something to this. So they went along to this conference. Now, at the same time, Suzanne, uh, the, the author of this book, was given an invite to speak at this conference. Uh, and she thought, since Eben Alexander is going, I should go, like, it, it'll give me credibility to talk alongside him. So she goes off to this this conference And she gives this presentation on making contact with your higher consciousness. And uh, she told the story about how her daughter-in-law had been struck by lightning and killed. And sitting in the front row was Mike and Beth, whose son Wolf had been killed, also struck by lightning. And they just thought, this is some kind of strange synchronicity that we've been sent to this conference. We have to go and speak to this woman. So Mike, uh, he introduced himself and he said, look... My son was struck by lightning as well. And, and Suzanne's sort of said, well, well, how can I help you? And he said, my son knew he was going to die. How is that possible? You've got to help us understand. And her response at the time was simply that the soul knows. You know, maybe he consciously didn't know, but the soul knows. And he says, he actually comes back at her and says, but, but it wasn't a dream. He knew exactly how he was going to die and he knew exactly where it was going to happen. So she was really intrigued and heard a little bit of his story but promised to follow up with him later. But the the detail of Wolf's passing of Mike and Beth's son is, is really why I wanted to talk about this today because it's it's absolutely incredible. He Mike takes us back to September the 8th, 2010. It's 9.45pm and he gets a knock at the door And it's two men standing under the porch light. They're wearing civilian clothes. And one of them introduces himself as a a state trooper, a trooper from Massachusetts. The other is a detective from the Plymouth police force. Mike has no idea why they're there. uh, But, you know, they ask him, Do you have a son in Plymouth? And he says, Yes, I do. Oh, no. He invites them inside. And and basically, they sit him down and say, Look, we're really sorry to tell you this, sir, but we, we found the body of your son. And obviously, you know, he breaks down awful, yeah. and his wife Beth breaks down and, and, and she manages to ask through the tears like, what, what happened to him. And they simply explained that, that they think he may have been climbing a tree and fell and broke his neck. It, they said it appeared to have happened at half past five or in between half past five and six o'clock this evening. They said, we're very sorry. And, and as soon as we have more details, as soon as we know exactly what happened, we'll let you know. And obviously that night they couldn't sleep. They they were haunted by the idea of their son breaking his neck and just lying there in agony in his last moments. Mm. But it just didn't sound like him. Like he he wasn't really the kind of guy to go and climb a tree in the evening. Like it just it didn't really make sense. So as soon as the sun came up, they got in their car and they drove to Plymouth, where where he lived and where he had died. And they they didn't have a key to his apartment, but they they simply wanted to be near, you know his where he was and and kind of get a sense of his presence yeah. to get some closure on what happened. That's understandable. So they started almost tracing his footsteps because they knew like what cafes he went to and where he hung out and they knew where where to go to the park and they ended up driving to the park and looked for where this might have happened and they immediately spotted a pair of latex gloves which must have been left behind by the investigators and then they saw a second pair... Laying next to this gnarled tree. And once they came to this big old beech tree, they realized that, you know, it must have been there for hundreds of years as this, this incredibly old tree. And they found his hat there. His um his hat had been left behind and it had all these skulls on it. And his Mike said, you know, that's that's Wolf's hat. Like he knew straight away, and obviously, you know, they're completely distraught. Uh now Mike wanted to leave a a simple tribute at the spot for their son on on this day. So they ended up going to a florist and they bought uh, two really large red roses and and using the containers they were in, they kind of planted them at the foot of this um, this beech tree. Mm -hmm. And he said they kind of stood up tall because of the containers they were in. So they just left these two roses there and that was their kind of goodbye. And... They ended up wandering the streets of Plymouth for the rest of the afternoon, just visiting Wolf's favourite hangouts. They went to this this cafe that he always talked about, but no one there, none of his friends were really there. They ended up going to this gift shop he used to talk about. Now, the storekeeper there said, oh, yeah, I saw, like she was blown away by his passing. uh, But she said, yeah, I saw him yesterday and he wanted to speak to me, but I was busy with a customer, so I couldn't talk to Wolf. And she said, he he actually left me a gift, which was strange. Uh, And... She showed it to them, and it was like a little um heart shaped rock oh and it was almost like was strange, carved? like this like it was just naturally shaped that way, but he had given it to her as a gift, okay, and it was this interesting kind of maybe it was like a final parting thing to leave behind. Mm. but he was struck by lightning. How could that be the case? Obviously, it's just this crazy be random this crazy accident now, as they're you know, just um Again, they don't know that he's been struck by lightning at this point. They're still, you know, tortured by the idea that he broke his neck and died in agony. In the afternoon, though, they got a call from the Plymouth detective who said, look, we know what happened. Uh, He was killed instantly. He was struck by lightning uh, and and there was no foul play. This is clearly what happened. Now, it was interesting because the investigator said there was a storm yesterday, but it was incredibly localised. It was almost as if the storm had just hovered over that park. And when they spoke to people from the cafe that Wolf used to go to, they said, yeah, there was a storm yesterday. A few people said, you know, I just heard a single clap of thunder. And that was it. The detective said, yeah, I I called my wife and told her to close all the windows because there was a storm coming. And she was like, what are you talking about? It's a beautiful day outside. So there's this really strange, very localized storm activity that kind of came and went. And that's how he was killed. A single strike of lightning from this freak storm that came out of nowhere.
1: Well, it's really that kind of thing of as strange as things are. It's like when your time's up, your time's up, isn't it? Well, after this, they were able to
0: get the key to his apartment. Uh, So they ended up driving over to the apartment. He lives by himself. It's just this kind of simple uh, old building. He's got a place there. And they entered his apartment. And he had a pretty strange setup. Let me send you a photo, Aaron. I'd like you to put this in the show notes. This is what his bedroom looked like. And and check out- Please don't tell me dinosaurs. <laughs> no, check out the walls. Oh. He, it's He's just covered his entire- This is just his bedroom, but the entire apartment is like this. It's like coming out of Beetlejuice. Every inch of the walls and the ceiling is a collage of posters and photographs- And, and walls And his writing and his own art. It's just this crazy kaleidoscope of of weirdness. And he, ha- he would place his artwork with great care. Like It, it looks chaotic, but it was very organised in how he had plastered everything
1: on the wall. It's like he's decoupaged it or something onto the walls. It's strange the way that it's
0: applied. So he's obviously a very uh, artistic guy, but it gives you a sense of like a chaotic mind when you, when you look at his, his bedroom. Mm. Anyway, they, st- they start looking around, and they're, they're used to this. They've visited plenty of times, obviously. They know that his apartment looks like this. But as they're looking around... That uh, they, they realized that there's something different about this collection. And it was something that was mentioned to Mike when he last visited his son. I think it was about three weeks prior where his son said to him, uh, this is the last time I'm moving. And this is interesting because Mike thought back to that moment, didn't think anything of it at the time. No, you normally don't. Because his son would move like every six months or so, pack up all his posters and drawings and sketches and poetry and then move to an apartment and do the same thing again, stick everything on the walls. He did this over and over again. But this time he told his father, I'm not moving anymore. This is the last time. So that was interesting in retrospect. And one thing that Beth said to Mike while they were looking through the apartment was, She goes, Mike, do do you notice anything strange about the place? And Mike goes, yeah, it's too neat. Like, if you look at that photo of his bedroom, yeah, it's chaotic on the walls, but look how clean his bedroom is.
1: Yeah, it is. Even the way that the bedspread's kind of, like, laid out nicely on the bed and... This is an alternative uh,
0: artist, artist kind of guy, right? His dad would visit him every three weeks or so, and he said the place was usually a pigsty. Like, his room especially look like a bomb had struck there was just stuff everywhere like the kitchen was always dirty clothes on the floor oh, but this is technically immaculate his apartment looks like it's it's ready for sale mm. like it is perfectly everything is perfectly in its precise spot it's beautifully cleaned everything's organized and put away and they're like we've never seen this from our son in his entire life it's totally out of character no food left in the kitchen. The fridge had been cleaned out. All pointing to the fact that he was preparing for something. He knew. But he was struck by lightning. It doesn't make sense. Now, while Mike was sitting on the couch again, just distraught, still obviously overcome with grief because his son's died. Beth is wandering to the bedroom and she ended up going to this, this other room called the nature room. At first, I thought it was the bathroom. But no, apparently, it's the second room in the apartment. And it was his meditation room. Mm -hmm. You know, every other room had this mixture of art and writing on the walls and this, this crazy kind of collage of stuff. But in this meditation room, it was all photographs of nature. It was all like fish and animals and birds and jungles and lush landscapes. It was this room he would have a chair in and basically do his meditations. And as soon as she walks into this room... She's immediately struck by this white piece of paper. It's like eight and a half inches by 11 inches. And it just stands out because everything else is a photograph. But this is obviously something he's created. Now, she steps closer and she she picks it up. And it's a large drawing in the shape of a human eye that that dominates dominates most of the page. And in the center of the eye where the cornea should be, he's drawn a yin-yang symbol. The rest of the eye is filled with squiggly lines, which is typical of his work. But there's a poem written on the piece of paper and she reads it and she's like, Mike, Mike, you've got to come and see this. You won't believe this. And I'll just send you a photo of this now, Aaron. Put this one in the show notes too. On the poem, he writes, Spirit of great healer, Awaken from within this heart. Peace and tranquility flow like water. The time has come, to allow the light of nature to free my soul. Oh, that's the light of nature. Exactly. The light of nature to free his soul. The time has come. How can someone know precisely how they're going to die, especially by a strike of lightning? They they just don't know what to make make of this. They're completely dumbfounded. And as they're... um, looking at this, just going, what on earth is going on? Mike sees something else and he goes, oh my God, Beth, look at this. And as she follows his gaze, she sees this cutout of one of Wolf's t-shirts and he stuck it. He's pinned it to the wall below this poem. And the t-shirt that he cut out is this one here. I'll send it to you, Aaron. Take a look at this. Put this in the show notes. What's on his t-shirt? Oh no. Lightning. Lightning a giant lightning bolt. That's what he cut out and stuck under this poem of his time
1: coming and allowing the light of nature to free his soul. He he appears to be a very tortured soul as well. It seems like there were other things going on with him.
0: You see how the couch he's sitting on has the eyeballs ice. on it? Yeah. It, that He
1: painted that. So he
0: paints everything around the, the apartment. and paints all this furniture and all the the artwork points to someone who's obviously conflicted inside. mm I think tortured there's
1: something, yeah, very dark.
0: How did he know?
1: Maybe he's been carrying this burden though. Maybe he knew that he's going to die and maybe that's why he's so tortured. I mean, we all know we're going to die, but most of us can put it to the back of our minds and ignore
0: it. Well, one thing that came to mind is he has this meditation room where he focuses all his energy and he's got this poem of how he's going to be taken by lightning to free his soul. While wearing a lightning t-shirt. Did he make it happen? Did he create a lightning oh. It Was his endless focus on this
1: idea of leaving the world manifested? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I was seeing it from the perspective of he just knew it was coming, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's that whole uh, self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Now, they left the apartment and didn't touch a thing because they're like, oh my gosh, this there's clues here. And they eventually ran into some of Wolf's friends from the old cafe used to hang out. And quite a few people remembered Wolf hanging out with them on the day that he died. But they were just having a normal conversation and he suddenly shot up out of his chair and announced, I've got to go right now. Where? He didn't say. He just stood up and left the cafe, made that announcement, I have to go. Now, he he went kind of running off down the street and he actually ran into a, a friend named Jim. Now, apparently Mike and Beth, they figure out that Jim was probably the last person to see Wolf alive. And... Jim told them that he just assumed Wolf was going home. But, but the beech tree where he was found wasn't along the route to, to Wolf's apartment. So it's like he had gone to the cemetery where this tree was on purpose. And again, there's a discussion of this storm being highly localized. Like it was just this weird freak storm as well. It didn't really affect the rest of the city. It just hit
1: this one spot. Maybe it is something that he created.
0: So Mike and Beth, they end up getting a professional photographer to photograph every one of the walls of the apartment to document all his poems and writings. And they pack everything up very carefully and take it home because they're thinking there has to be some more clues here. But again, that poem, they keep coming back to this line in the poem, the time has come to allow the light of nature to free my soul. And Mike wrote that well, sorry, Susan wrote that so many other things in Wolf's final hours seemed to confirm that he had somehow known he was going to die. He had told his father he was finished moving his art around. He had cut the lightning bolt out of his favourite T-shirt and tacked it to the wall. He had tidied up his apartment as if he knew he wasn't coming back. And he had told his friends moments before the storm, I have to go now. And she says, obviously, woven together, this creates a mystical tapestry that was beyond Mike and Beth's ability to comprehend. But... After a a few days of mourning and and pondering this mystery, Beth was the first person to notice it. Something about that hand-drawn eye next to that poem, there was something about it that caught her eye that they hadn't seen before. And she said, Mike, take a second, look at this. You you won't believe it. Now, Aaron, I'm going to send you a a zoomed-in image of the eye that he wrote next to the poem. Mm Mm-hmm. And take a look to the right of the yin-yang symbol. What do you see? A tree. And what's in front of the tree? Two roses. Two roses. Sticking up out of the ground. They're the roses that Mike and Beth left for him the day after he died.
1: That's surreal. Isn't that incredible? He had seen it. That would mean that not only did he create his own death, he also created the entire scenario around it. Yeah, I mean... That makes me think he did see it. He obviously saw it. And look as well, it's in an eye, as you say. So is it exactly. in, he's looking at it? He obviously saw it. I, I, I'm more
0: inclined to believe, I like, you know, to ponder that he created this somehow, but I'm more implied, I'm more inclined to believe in some kind of destiny that he foresaw. Mm. And you're right. Having the eyeball there. Well, it's within the eye, so it's what the eye sees. Having the tree with the two roses, absolutely incredible. Now that day at the conference, you know, Mike told most of this story. Suzanne was so intrigued, she promised to do a reading for them after the conference had wrapped up. Uh, but that afternoon, when when the the day had finished at the conference, Mike and Beth they had some free time, so they ended up going to the the steps that lead up to the the hospital that was built by Edgar Casey in 1928. And when you get to the top of these steps, there's a, a huge labyrinth. It's 40 feet in diameter and it's not like raised walls or anything. It's just this pattern on the ground made in bricks, but it's like a labyrinth pattern. Yeah. And there was a woman kind of transfixed walking the labyrinth, which is what you're supposed to do. It's like a meditative exercise yeah. to walk the labyrinth. It's and too. Beth was going to continue walking, but Mike said, hang on a second, Beth, come and have a look at this. And he points to the symbol that's that's at the heart of the labyrinth. And she he says, Beth, do you recognize this? And I'll send you the photo here, Aaron. Here's another one for the show notes. They realized that this pattern, which you'll see on the right in the image, was almost identical to one of the pieces of art they'd pulled out of their son's apartment. It's very similar. It's a yin-yang symbol. With dolphins. And instead of the two dots, it's got dolphins on either side. His version was slightly different colors, but it's essentially the same symbol. And... You know, you could argue that a lot of people have probably painted this symbol. Yeah. But was but... it again something that he saw in the future mm. that his parents would make this discovery, and then they would go to this conference and they would see this symbol in the ground, and he left this painting for them as a, it's a as a clue, mm. as a message. But he did it well before he had passed away. They pointed out that he went through this dolphin stage where all he painted was dolphins and symbols, but that was his favourite painting. It was his, his favourite, so much so that he, he ended up sticking it on his wall. So just another you know incredible synchronicity to add to the list. Now, weeks later when she finally gets around to it, uh, Suzanne does a reading for two, the two of them y- using her mediumship skills, and she does it over Skype and she explains that her mediumship works in a way where it, she hears kind of voices and images sees you know things f- f- flushing past her, th- her third eye you could say but it's mostly thoughts that are hard to separate from her own right so she's just picking out things that seem foreign and and, and letting them know and as soon as she kind of taps in she feels Wolf's presence, like she can feel the presence of this young man come through. She taps into it using her mediumship abilities. And she says aloud to him, you know, go ahead. Like, what do you want to say? And she's listening with as much concentration as she can. And she starts talking about, she has this feeling like she's swinging a bat. And she asks Mike if Wolf was interested in baseball and he's like, no. And she, she kind of waves the thought away. She says, you get a lot of no's, but you kind of wave it away. And eventually you get to what the, the person on the other side is trying to communicate. Yeah. And eventually she says, he's showing me writing, writing, writing. I feel introspective or drawing, writing and drawing, sketching, sketching, sketching. And Mike's like, yes, it's far out there. She said, he's sketching things that don't make sense to other people. Now, keep in mind, she's just gotten a gist of the story. She doesn't know the full extent of his apartment being covered in art and mm. him sketching on his couch and having a separate room for drawings and all this sort of stuff. And Mike says, yeah, spot on, exactly. Um, she says, I keep seeing pyramids, triangles, spirals, circles. He says it was like going home to draw these things. It was like going home. Now, the words didn't make sense on a rational level, she said, But I knew that he was referring to his spiritual home, not this earthly realm. So everything that he's sketching and drawing is is from this other world. She says he's saying he tried to explain this to people and they just couldn't understand. They thought he had a fanciful imagination. She says there's a strong emotion coming through. I want to cry. She said he's saying I had to go, dad. I had to go and I had to go like that referring to the lightning strike. But why lightning? Well, this is what Mike says. He's why? Why did it have to happen this way? She says, Wolf explained through me he had fulfilled his mission here on Earth just as my stepdaughter had. He and Susan had both come to leave their legacy, but apparently he wasn't sitting around idle now in the non-physical dimension. I still have work to do, he was communicating. I'm helping those on the other side who take their own lives. He's helping them to see what they've done, she said. And he communicated, I've now experienced life with them. I help the young ones. So he's saying that he's passed on to help other people that commit suicide. Was the lightning strike a suicide? But lightning can't be suicide. Can it? There's no proving this, she says, but he's saying to her, you'll understand it someday. He can help those who take their own lives. He helps them adjust and grow spiritually. Now, she says Mike and Beth say very little during this. They seem stunned by the intensity of the exchange and the information being revealed. She then sees a series of images that takes her to the desert, then to Arizona and the Grand Canyon. There's something about Wolf having a sacred experience there. And Mike informs uh, her that, that he and Beth actually scattered his ashes in the Grand Canyon. So there's this weird connection, um, and interestingly, he starts drawing a circle in the ground in her mind, and she's like, "He's showing me one of those things you walk in. It looks like a maze on the ground. What's it? What's it called?" And Mike's like, "At the conference, we saw, we saw a labyrinth." And she's like, "Labyrinth. That's it. She had no idea they had had that experience. So it's obvious to them that she is actually in touch with." The soul of their dead son. There's too much verifying information coming through. There's no way she could have known that. More um, comes through, like his love of archery, uh, birth dates, weird anecdotes from childhood, end up coming through, and it's all lining up for them. Eventually, they're convinced this is their son speaking through the medium. Mm. She says he's saying, "I had to go, Dad. It's all signed up for now. Now go out and change the world." And apparently, he was saying. They were meant to do something with his death. He was. He ends up communicating that he, he went out with the lightning. He says, the way I went wasn't by accident. It was for a purpose. He got sp- struck by lightning in such a strange way and left all these markers for it because it was meant to make people sit up and pay attention. It was meant to make people say, hang on a second, how does this work? How can someone possibly see this coming? Now... It's a high price to pay though to get people to sit up and pay attention. Well, eventually she starts receiving all these images he's giving her of going up in a hot air balloon, rising up in a hot air balloon and then jumping out with a parachute and heading back down to earth. And this repeats over and over, hot air balloon rising up, parachute jumping out, going back to earth. And he's saying that some people would have to to say that, that I was crazy. But when he refers to the stuff that he was putting on the walls and everything he was writing and drawing, he says he couldn't stop the flow because he couldn't break the connection with the other dimension. It was just constant channeling, he says. He was tethered there, he says, tethered to the other side. Do you understand what he's saying? And his parents are like, yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, so he's almost saying that yeah, he's he's rising up and he's experiencing higher things in other dimensions, but then he has to suddenly plummet back down to our reality. But that sounds like an anchor. And he well, he can't balance the two. He's mm. completely out of whack. He he communicates. I was in both worlds at once all the time. He says like he couldn't turn it off. She says it feels like he's trying to show me that his brain was wired differently than other people's. He says I was not of this world, and then she says. He just said to me the word schizophrenia. Did you ever think that he had a mental illness? Mm. And they both say,
1: yes, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yeah. Looking at that photo, I wasn't going to say it because I want to give it away, but I was looking at that photo of, and you'll see it as well. Like it's consistent with someone that has that kind of uh, artistic outlook when they're suffering from schizophrenia. Like it's, You see it in some patients, it's actually like a symptom that comes out. It's really fascinating. And that's why the hot air balloon
0: analogy makes sense. Mm. He's constantly in touch with something else, but then he has to dive back down. And it's not like a smooth landing in the hot air balloon. He's thrown out of the hot air balloon back to earth, like back to our reality. No. But ultimately, what he tells them is, again, look how I passed. It's not an accident. This is to bring more empathy for those with mental illness. He says, there's a baseline of behavior in your world that is considered normal, and that's understandable because you have to function. But you can see how I was in both worlds and unable to function on the normal baseline. He says, I've been coming to you every night, Dad. Get your paper and pencil ready. I will give you a taste of what it was like for me to hear the voices. Write it down, Dad. It's me. And his final words to his parents, uh, actually the final thing he gives to... Suzanne, before this mediumship session ends, is she says, oh, he's he's flashing up a hand sign, like this weird hand sign. And she kind of does it to, to Mike and Mike just starts crying because apparently that was how they said goodbye to each other. Like when Mike would visit his son, instead of, you know, waving goodbye or having a hug, they would do this hand sign. And the hand sign is in American sign language, the sign for I love you. Right. And so this is the final, obviously, confirmation for him, and he just says, "I'll be around" to his dad. Now, the the rest of the book is Suzanne continuing to make contact with him on the other side, and finding all these, you know, strange connections of where he's ultimately leading her. I didn't finish the book this afternoon, but you know, skipping ahead, eventually she uh, she's told by him to search out this. German researcher, and it turns out to be uh, von Daniken. (laughs) So she's like going down this ancient aliens von Daniken route, and it leads somewhere else. And it starts to have that crazy wild goose chase spirit. Like, yeah, I just I was just thinking that spirit possession angle to it, where she's like traveling all over the uh, all over the United States trying to follow these leads that are given to her by the spirit of
1: Wolf. You got to wonder if like they got a little bit of validation at the start, which may have been him but then he's gone off now that he's achieved what he wants and now something else has stepped in.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really moving story, but from our experience of researching this stuff on the show, I still have that large part of my mind that's like, well, it might have been him at the start, but is it him that continually comes through or is something else going on? Can she discern the difference between a genuine individual and someone pretending to be that
1: individual? Well, something just occurred to me and it's that you know, people suffering from schizophrenia, you know, and, and much of the research that you and I have done over the years, Ben, um, yeah, I mean, it's probably from a, a medical perspective, some type of chemical imbalance in the brain, but there are researchers that have treated it from the perspective of believing that they genuinely have something in their head that they're communicating with. Multiple entities, potentially. Now, what's not to say, I mean, he's saying there, and I find this to be difficult to get my head around, that he was killed so that he could bring attention to mental illness. But it's or bring more you know sympathy to mental illness. But it's like you probably could have done that while you were alive, mate. Exactly. And so I'm thinking, did something actually get into him and push him into that situation? Just look at the photo of his
0: bedroom again. I mean, that is a tortured soul. Absolutely. That is that is not a soul that is not happy helping anyone. He can't even help himself. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's probably more likely that he foresaw his future and that twisted him to a degree but he does mention there that he's hearing the voices he says to his father you're going to hear the voices like i hear the voices people that hear the voices are tortured yes they are when, when yeah. people hear voices it's always low-level entities yeah always low-level entities
1: you know we've seen this time and time again when higher things uh kind of well, assist... higher things communicate with things like synchronicity exactly because, like remember what you said like the language is not the same you can't like this is but, what this is what Swedenborg yeah. detailed this is what
0: um Steiner detailed is is the higher entities don't interfere in such a way
1: that they're chattering in your head or it's what you said if a high level entity is going to communicate with you it will obliterate you because yeah. of the power that's involved it'll in rattle it. your skull to pieces yeah so
0: he's hearing the voices of something dark um uh, but overall the the book has this message of the proof of life after death. I mean, that from her background of being, you know, this kind of hard-nosed, you know, Navy girl. That's where the direction it goes, is look how much solid evidence we have for life after death. And it's funny, if you read the reviews for the book, there's two types of reviews. There's people saying, this is incredible. Yeah. Oh my God, the evidence for life after death is undeniable. And And the other reviews are like us, we're like, yeah, we know. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a revelation. Yeah. (laughs) So it's funny like there is a good story in there. I just found the whole the whole prophetic vision of of his sketches and drawings. Make sure you check them out in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. It's I mean and especially the eye. I mean that with the tree, with the tree and it the, the two roses. That is really cool. Yeah. Oh, that but is even incredible. even the shirt with lightning on it. I mean yeah, because this is the kind of thing what we've been talking about in today's episode. You know, isolated. Yeah, I mean it could be a coincidence, but when you put all these things together, you start to get, you know, the pieces of the puzzle showing you the greater picture.
0: You know, if I went to your house now, I'd probably see all these posters and drawings of a a man dying from a massive, horrible gelatin... Tapioca brick. Tapioca mass (laughs) in his lower intestine.
1: (laughs) Just like sketches of bubble tea everywhere (laughs) through your apartment. And then you see that there's this eye, and inside the eye, there's you and I ordering bubble tea.
0: (laughs) There's me just... Never again. There's me laughing at your funeral with a bubble tea. (laughs) (laughs) And I just pour out a couple of pearls in your memory.
1: Never touching that stuff ever again
0: <laughs> I'll link to the book in the show notes there's a real kind of crazy goose chase uh, if you want to go into it in, in greater detail Suzanne Geisman is the author the book is the wolf's message and again definitely check out the the images from there as well that's a wrap for this plus show thank you so much for listening uh, Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up with you on Friday for your next MU see you then